So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at ButcherBox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. If you're a fan of workplace comedies like The Office or satire like The Onion, then I have a podcast that I know you'll love. It's called Mega. Mega is an improvised satire from the staff of a fictional mega church. That's the premise. Each week, the hosts, Holly Laurent and Greg Hess, are joined by guests, since people like Cecily Strong or Jen Hatmaker, to portray characters inside the colorful world of Twin Hills Community Church, which they describe as a mega church with a tiny family feel. The result is a sharp-witted and hilarious look into the world of commercialized religion using humor to cope with the frightening amount of power that church and religion have. So I very much recommend you checking out Mega's episodes, like the one with Saturday Night Live's Cecily Strong, playing Cece String, a hilarious character who's fresh out of jail, uh, and also comedian Jason Mansukas. You may find yourself dying of laughter and perhaps inspired to take an improv class yourself. Mega is able to keep you laughing as you think and reflect about the world we live in. You can find Mega on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Spending way too much time on social media? Derek here from Conspirituality, and you might be able to break the cycle of doom scrolling on Elon Musk's haunted Twitter by tuning into the Crooked Media podcast Offline with John Favreau. I have been a Crooked Media fan since the company was founded, and I'm really excited to be talking about Offline because it's a different kind of Sunday show. It's a chance to step outside our social media fueled news cycles and hear smarter, lighter conversations about how chronically online existence and shapes the way that we live, work, and interact with the world around us. Each week, John Favreau is joined by notable guests like Stephen Colbert, Hassan Piker, ContraPoints, Margaret Atwood, what? All for intimate conversations about how to live happier, healthier lives, both on and offline. New episodes of Offline with John Favreau drop every Sunday wherever you get your podcasts. Spirituality. I'm Derek Barris. I'm Matthew Rimsky. I'm Julian Walker. You can stay up to date with us on all of our social media handles, including on Facebook, Instagram, where we populate 
most of our material, uh, YouTube, um, also Strava, which was an unexpected source of connection, but uh, shout out to Jed Lowenthal, who was following me and then turns out he listens to our podcast while cycling. A uh, little envious of his cycling routes in Los Angeles. He gives me something to aspire to. Uh, we are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where for $5 a month, you can help support us and get access to our Monday bonus episodes. Conspirituality 71. So do we believe in anything at all? We're grounding down. We're letting go. We're going deep. We're finding the meta in our meta and tuning into source. This week, we'll either answer or transcend the core questions our listeners post in moments of parasocial vulnerability. Do you guys believe in anything at all? Are there wholesome spiritual communities out there? Are all spiritual teachers toxic? This four-hour immersive encounter between three white guys is not to be missed. It's, it's really important. <laughs> Seriously, though, it's not going to be that long. We've got some huge interviews and investigative pieces coming up in the next few weeks. So we are kicking back a little here to talk basics and regroup. Wait a second. I, I blocked off four hours for this. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'll let you guys uh, take the last two. <laughs> right. Uh, I think it's best to start with, you know, why do we get these questions? Because, and I'll just say that personally, my first responses to them have in the past been allergic. Like, it's none of your business what I believe. Uh, You know, I don't know where to find a good spiritual community. I just write about bad ones. Uh, I even uh, (laughs) cut about a bonus episode with that title. I'm a little bit less allergic to these questions now because I understand that they really are about trust. Uh, And yes, we make a crack about parasocial vulnerability, off of the lead there, but I think we do have to acknowledge that we're doing long-form podcasting and it's really intimate. We're in people's earbuds talking about spirituality and religion and bodies in some depth. Um, And it's natural that I think listeners drawn to the content are going to have fundamental questions about trust and values. And that's especially true if we are in the position of picking apart or mocking beliefs. You know, the old saying, it's easy to tear things down and it's hard to build things up. Um, and I think it's also true if we're talking about influencers who in some ways are in the same position that we are, um, you know, people who want to produce attractive content, but who may eventually show themselves to be cynical or even manipulative. And then also, I think these questions speak to the sort of technological landscape because we're talking within this alienating and frictionless and low filter landscape with way too much data to process. So it's natural to reach for some relational foothold, like what, so what are you really like? And I think the values footholds might be simple in some ways, the the bars for trust in some ways could be pretty low. I I think too, Matthew, that we're, you know, what we're doing is so sort of content heavy in terms of all of the different stuff that we analyze. And for a lot of people, many of whom are are really appreciative, but are also frank about it being like a a big, um, a big change in terms of their worldview, uh, interacting with our content, then inevitably underneath that, are the philosophical questions like, okay, so what are the implications of all of this for my deeper 
uh, philosophical attitudes about life and being human and, and spirituality, if we want to use that word. Yeah, I agree. So we've organized, um, or we've picked three questions that we may not have received verbatim in the last week, but we've received versions of them over time. Uh, so we're just going to sort of start an opening round by responding to each of these three. So the first one is more of a statement. It's like, it feels like you guys don't believe in anything. Uh, I guess the question would be, what's up with that? Or do you? Um, the second one is, so are there good spiritual communities out there or are all of them toxic? And then the third one would be, uh, so are there good spiritual teachers out there or all, or are all of them toxic? So who wants to, who wants to take a crack at number one? I will rehash a, a story I've told before, but it, it's pertinent here, which is that I arrived in college without having grown up with any religion. My father's side was Russian Orthodox. My mother's side was Catholic, but they didn't um, push any religion on me. I went to CCD for a little bit and then said, I don't want to go anymore. They're like, okay, that's fine. So when I got to college, um, I was wide open. I didn't have any sort of um, training or any sort of, uh, I don't want to say indoctrination, but I didn't, I didn't think that this one religion was better than any others. I didn't have that. So when I decided to major in religion and become a religion journalist for the school newspapers at Rutgers, I got to talk to a lot of religious leaders. And then, you know, I'll talk to Muslim leaders and Jewish leaders, Christian, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, like all Rutgers has a very diverse campus. And all of them thought they had the special sauce. And after, you know, doing this for a few years and reading all of the texts in a comparative manner, I realized, and this does dip over into the other questions, though, that these communities were really good for people to be involved with because they gave a sense of camaraderie between people. But the problem was, was everyone thought they were right. And that's just impossible. You can't have that. So I... I don't believe in any particular sanctioned religion. And as we'll, I'll get to as we progress here, I find problems with the word spirituality in general. I find problems with the word religion in general. Um, and that's not just me. Religious scholars can't define religion. There are actual fights that go on about what religion actually means. And you can extrapolate from that and apply it to spirituality as well, because everyone's going to have a definition. And what I've found is people usually mean some physical and emotional feeling that I have and I have experienced, which I then take to believe that that experience is the same for everyone. And to me, that, that, that's problematic in itself because it's anecdotal, even in a communal setting. Um, so, so I'll turn it back when you say something like, don't believe in anything, that, that is the most vague statement because it's like, well, what are you really asking? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. that the, question, the question sort of has baked into it when, when included in the definition of belief is belief in something supernatural or belief in something that uh, cannot be touched by, by science or reason. Um, I think, I think like, like both of you, I was very drawn to 
investigating and exploring religious traditions and ideas and mythology and, and especially spiritual poetry and practices. And I was very interested in the, the first person subjective direct experience that practices promised from, from traditions that were very practice heavy. And, and to echo what you just said, Derek, I feel like one of the, one of the wrong turns that certainly I've taken and that I see a lot of people take is to, is to interpret a direct first person experience as disclosing something universal about the ultimate nature of reality, about the metaphysical existence of some kind of, you know, domain, um, based on my direct experience. And, and typically what happens is that interpretation is based on your pre-existing beliefs anyway, or on the pre-existing beliefs of the community within which you have the experience, whatever that experience is. So I think for me over time, I just, I became more interested in, in being science informed. And so f now I sort of see science as a primary value that makes all other spheres of inquiry better. It kind of creates a, a demarcation around what sorts of claims are acceptable to make and, and, and which are probably uh, really suspect. And this also has a, a psychological component. And for me, it's, it's very embedded in an embrace of the body as sacred in and of itself. And we know that many certainly traditional religious um, ideologies that did not really do that. So it's a sort of uh, almost maybe a humanistic uh, spiritual principle uh, that, that combines with the sense that scientific method is, is good. What I hear both of you saying is that um, some kind of experiential phenomenon translates into a belief state that ends up creating faith claims. And I think there's a bridge there to look at that reveals something about the way in which we use the word belief. And uh, I'm going to, so I'm going to answer this question with a little bit of etymology. And to just say, to begin that, I think this conversation, especially between three guys approaching or in middle age uh, can't help but to be influenced, especially with the content that we deal with, which is to, you know, analyze, uh, you know, spiritual new age content, that it can't help but be influenced and perhaps overshadowed by the echo of, you know, early aughts or even 1990s rationalism, uh, the skeptic movement, the new atheist movement. Um, and there's a, a politics and there's an attitude that goes along with that stuff that, you know, we could do a whole other show on, but I'll just limit it to say that, you know, the, the nugget that I take away from that era and that zone uh, comes from Peter Bogosian's Manual for Creating Atheists, which I read a long time ago, uh, in which he defined, and he actually kind of, uh, he, he, he conflated faith and belief with this def definition. Uh, he said that faith is belief without evidence, uh, and the state of pretending to know things that you don't know. Um, but what I want to say is that this relies on a historically bound understanding of belief that is fairly narrow. Uh, and that, again, it, confl it conflates two different things, uh, the, the state of knowing something and the state of feeling something. So um, if we go back, something happens to the word belief in the English language somewhere prior to the 12th century. Um, we have Old English and Germanic 
meanings of the precursors to belief. I don't know how to pronounce these, uh, Galefa, Galauben, but the general uh, feeling of these words is that which we hold dear, that which we find beloved, that which we esteem. Uh, and then at a certain point, uh, especially maybe with the rise of scholasticism, maybe with the uh, influence of monastic learning and the Catholic Church in the 13th and 14th centuries in, in, in England, uh, we have the introduction of fides or faith from the Latin, which is really a way of describing a set of claims that will sort of define you with a religious identity. And those two words begin to combine. And so, uh, when Boghossian uses a word like belief, or words like belief and faith somewhat interchangeably, I think what he's doing is he's missing the fact that when people say that they believe something, when they hold the belief, they might be talking about what they love as much as what they think. Uh, and that's a really important distinction because, um, uh, you know, when you think about, when, when, if, if I were to imagine like the typical evangelical participant in a mega church down south somewhere swaying to music and holding their heart and, you know, raising a hand in praise and, and with their eyes closed and they, and you hear them say the word, I believe in Jesus. Um, are they making a claim in that moment about who and what Jesus is or what, what Jesus means? Or are they saying, I love the idea of Jesus. I love the meaning of Jesus in my life. And what I've noticed about the discourse that a lot of, you know, our, our landscape inherits from, you know, uh, from rationalism, skepticism, new atheism, is that the notion that people are actually talking about what they hold dear is lost. Uh, and this is not to say that beliefs can't have negative outcomes, uh, but it is to say that if you don't address the fact that when people say that, you know, they're they believe in something and what they really mean is that they love the idea of, you know, acupuncture or Reiki. They love the worldview or the feeling that they get when they encounter astrology. Uh, then they're talking about something different than whether or not astrology has predictive power in any kind of like measurable sense. And I think if we miss that, if we miss that, then we're, um, then we're going to we're going to we're going to miss culture in a lot of ways because i think um uh yeah like i don't live by um beliefs in the sense of these are the things that i know to be true i believe in a i i live in a world of trust and uh endearments like these are the things that i love so anyway that's that's what i wanted to say about what I believe. And then following from that is like, oh, I can list all of the things that I love, but I don't really, um, I don't really use those things or focus upon them as articles of truth or, you know, things that will never change or things that are just sort of etched in stone. Well, you're, you're saying you're, you're putting in, in a, in a, in your own kind of frame, something that I'm going to come back to again and again today, which is that the, the, the differentiating of meaningful experience 
and emotional connection, whether that's to, uh, to that experience or to the group of people with whom one bonds during that experience, that, that teasing that apart from faith claims and from the metaphysical uh, ideology, whether it's explicit or implicit in which that is happening, I, I think is a really worthwhile endeavor. And I think that even though the person in that mega church may not be saying when they say, I love Jesus, that they, they believe in some, you know, very specific uh, set of factual claims. The preacher is saying that. And the preacher, the, the preacher is selling them on the idea that if you believe these things, you will go to heaven, you will, you will have eternal life, you will not die, which is a core thing that people are really afraid of. You will be, you will be saved by, by having this personal relationship with Jesus, who is not just a metaphorical mythic symbol, but in that context is the living God. That 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 through him you shall come to salvation, and so I, I think it's it's really tricky to. They might have doctrinal training that way. It's true. Yeah, yeah. They might, and they might be repeating what they've learned in seminary. Who the preacher? Yes, the preacher. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. I mean, there's this distinction, uh, Derek, you were talking about religious studies and its struggles with defining religion. Well, yeah. And, and one of the most compelling ideas that I've, I've come across in the last 10 years or so is, I can't remember who, who is the, the pioneer of this, but the notion of lived religion is to try to find the distinction between what people enjoy doing in terms of their spiritual meaning and what how they identify in terms of doctrinal tenets. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's usually a huge difference between those things when you really do the sociology on them, right? Like the person who practices Catholicism in Mexico with elements of Santeria and, and whatever, uh, is, is saying that they hold the doc doctrinal tenets of the Catholic Church, but what they're actually doing in their lives from day to day reflects something much different. And so, yeah, there's a there's a there's a wedge in there, and I think we have to like walk a line because I'm sure our listeners uh, are are filled with you know this this split world of experience versus uh, claims as well, or they, at least they live there too. Jesus uh, would look a lot more like uh, AOC than Ted Cruz today, right? Which would infuriate conservative Republicans in America. But if you want to actually talk um, social structure and policy, that's just the reality. So when people say they're waiting for Jesus to come back, no, they're not, not really, because you wouldn't, <laughs> you wouldn't recognize that. And if you did, you would reject it, which is exactly yeah. what we're seeing play out in America. But when you say look like you mean in terms of policy, right? Yes. Not physically. Yeah. <laughs> Correct. Uh, well, the hair too, I guess, but the romanticization <laughs> aspect of spirituality, I mean, we're so accustomed to it from yoga, the yoga land, where there's this idea of there were these yogis who just meditated to bliss, spent their days and all and everything. It reminds me of a conversation. And I think I brought this up in one of the music episodes, but when back in my DJing days, I used to DJ with um, someone named Reka who founded Basement Bhangra. And in the early aughts, there was this moment where Indian music was having a, a moment in hip hop where Jay-Z sampled Punjabi MC and, and Missy Elliott and Timberland took a tabla sample for one of her big hits. And so there was a talk because I was uh, predominantly DJing and hanging out with the, the South Asian community. And 
Reka warned, because when I asked her, I said, how do you feel about Bangura reaching mainstream acceptance now all of a sudden after all these years? She said, it it really bothered her, this, this happy natives story that was around Bangura from the general population, meaning that these were all, this is all music of the happy Indians in the fields dancing as they as they gathered the crops and planted and all that. And she's like, that's not the reality of what Indians go through. And, you know, we've, of course, in our circles, we know about the problems with Monsanto and India, very real problems that happen with trademarks and how, how high the suicide rate is in farming in India. But it's not like that's a new problem. This is sustenance farming in across Asia has been an issue for thousands of years, probably since the dawn of agriculture. So the, the distance between our idea of what a spirituality is and what the lived reality of the people are is vast. But as I've often said, if you live a middle-class or better lifestyle in America where those concerns aren't really affecting you, then of course you can have all sorts, your imagination can go anywhere you want to think that there is this ideal time that you'll reach if you just do these things that your yoga instructor has told you to do. Well, let's get concrete though with it because um, with the issues that we cover, you know, if we do, if we look at uh, what's the evidentiary basis for people saying that something like acupuncture works? Or why do people believe, to use that word in Reiki, um, like when somebody believes in Reiki, whether they are, um, you know, describing something that they love or whether they're making a claim about the energy moving through the hands, uh, how do we... Like the, the the our title is so. Do we believe in anything? Like, how do we approach statements and sentiments like that? Well, I I, I think for me the 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 point there, the distinction I would make there is between the experience that is happening that involves uh, trust and relaxation and having having someone uh, being there for you in a loving and supportive way. Um, and and the the sort of wonders of that that emerge in that kind of relational experiential space that includes touch that includes a certain kind of nervous system entrainment that includes having space to decompress and maybe open up emotionally or or to release physical tension whatever the thing may be it's differentiating that from what i still see as a very specific claim which is that there is this energy it's called reiki and you can take this training and it costs this much money to learn how to be attuned to the special reiki energy that comes through this lineage from this special person who was in some way you know superhuman um and even if that's not being leaned on heavily it's still part of that superstructure you know the 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 the, the idea that people can uh, engage in practices together that are beneficial and healing that we might be able to understand through neuroscience or through relational psychology um, or through just general sort of physiology and, and some sort of mind-body process or that we may not be able to fully explain accepting that and valuing that is very different than saying that the metaphysical uh, framework that it comes in is is sort of neutral or harmless or doesn't matter what you call it because actually there are some pretty pretty strong things being smuggled in there that I think are potentially problematic. 
I'd also look at it just from what the claims are, you know, very often. And it, it, it's also indicative of social media and how we're reacting and interacting with the people that listen to us is you'll hear us say something and then it'd be like, well, you just don't know. And usually, I, speaking for myself, a lot of these modalities I've done many times. Like when we've talked about chiropractic, I've had over 500 chiropractic sessions in my life. Damn. So I know a bit of, I, I know a bit about it. I had very serious uh, hip problems when I was younger. Um, I when it comes to let's go to acupuncture because honestly I don't know much about Reiki at all. But with acupuncture, I've had dozens of sessions, and I will say that it's very relaxing. I really enjoyed them. The music, the the lying there with the music and the the points in, I, I don't feel it. But when I leave, I feel lighter because I just laid on a table for 45 minutes and listened to music and meditated basically. Yes, I feel good. Now, will this have positive effects on my immune system? Very possibly. But will it cure this or that thing? Well, then you have to look at... What was my immune response from the actual, from the music, from the meditation aspect, from the lying down, not just the meridian points. You have to look at it holistically. And then you have to take a, a data a sample of many people who've had similar experiences. And it's really hard to do science. So I, I, a lot of these modalities we talk about and critique, I have no problems with. Some I do, but not all of them. And if they bring somebody healing or joy, I'm all for them. But when the claims are made, that's when I get triggered by it because I'm like, you can't make those claims because then people who may need serious medical help are going to instead turn to those modalities because they're believing your claims. And when they don't work, there's going to be guilt, there's going to be harm done. And the people that perpetuated that myth are never going to take responsibility for it. So it's like, for me, it's seeing these, uh, these modalities that are more experiential that are sort of outside the realm of, of conventional medical science, seeing them as sort of life enhancing and potentially supportive of some kind of healing process, but that they're not an alternative to actual medical care and that they certainly don't rise to the level of being something that is going to be prescribed for, you know, really serious injuries or that is going to claim to be effective for really serious injuries or diseases. And unfortunately, as with a lot of people we cover, this is what we see happening because the underlying philosophy buys into this idea that, oh no, this is actually what real healing looks like. If you're really holistic and taking responsibility for your health and all the rest of it, and, you, and you've rejected big pharma and Western medicine, then you'll do these things even you know, to the, to the extent of COVID or cancer or something like that. I think with the alt-health zones where we can appeal to, well, did this work and do we have enough studies to show that it works? We're in a fairly tangible territory. But we also, when we're speaking about the belief in something work working, there's a huge spectrum. And maybe on the farthest edge, we have something like um, mediumship or, um, you know, psychic skills. And I want to bring up that... Um, you know, I, I posted onto Instagram um, something about MLMs. Uh, I can't remember what the post was, but into the comments came a very um, enthusiastic defender of their own MLM. And 
she was very earnest and she was had all of the explanations and, you know, everything that MLM defenders say, this is not a pyramid scheme. You know, this is like any other business. Uh, I've been doing this for 35 years, so it must be okay. Uh, you know, there are assholes in every business and so on and so forth. But I clicked through the profile and I found that the person also makes money as a medium talking to dead people. And so I posted to Instagram that feeling when, or to Twitter, that feeling when an MLM defender crashes your IG with a lot of earnest sounding arguments about how their unnamed MLM is not exploitative. And then you click through and learn that they charge $200 for 90 minutes of channeling dead people. And when I tweeted that, I went into Slack and I said, Derek, is this is this a low blow? <laughs> is this, is this too much? Is this cruel? I mean, I'm not naming the person and, you know, people who are on the page or they're going to know what the, what, what exchange I'm referring to. But nonetheless, um, this is somebody who has made their living in MLMs and they also sell sessions in which they communicate with dead people. Now, are those two things connected in your mind, is it fair to discredit a person, a person's comments or their opinions based on this combination of uh, career choices? <laughs> there's a there's an idea that how you do one thing is how you do everything. Some people believe that. I don't think that's totally true, but it does cut across um, occupations sometimes. For example, my work with conspirituality and my full-time work happens to do with flow states, which I'll talk about at some point. But there, there's some crossover um, in terms of, of what I do. And I would expect that of a lot of people. There's very few people who do very distinct things. Uh, I want to latch on to that medium thing because I think that makes uh, an ideal uh, segment for this conversation, which when we get to there, do I believe that's possible? And the answer is very clear, no, because I believe consciousness is an emergent phenomenon that occurs due to the physiology of our bodies. So therefore, communing with the dead is something that I don't believe is possible. So that that's an example where um, it's a very clear-cut answer. It's, it's, it's a world that's open to charlatans. I, I am going to guess that some people who think they're channeling are very earnest, you brought up that word, and think it's true. I don't think it's possible. Um, nothing in the study of consciousness has opened me up to believing it, and I've never seen proof of that. Well, this is why I'm bringing it up, is, is that my um, comments on Instagram prompted objections from people who practice psychic mediumship uh, and who will say, well, you know, what I do is not fraudulent and it has nothing to do with MLMs. I resent being, you know, lumped together like this. Uh, and that, it gives me pause. Um, so, you know, one question that comes out for me is, well, can people act as mediums without hurting others? And how would they do that? I, I think it kind of spills over into the idea of good spiritual communities. It's one of those things. The human imagination is incredible. It's one of the driving principles of our evolution culturally. And if it's bringing somebody a sense of closure in their lives, or if they feel complete, if it helps them, 
I guess it's not totally bad to me. I mean, there's a lot of things like that. It's a placebo. And so it it can be done with a sense of humility, possibly. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with that. But overall, I, I still don't think that you're doing anyone any good by saying false things or things you can't actually verify. And it spills over into something we've, we've all said in various ways. If you're talking to alien civilizations that are ancient and futuristic and have all these amazing powers, bring back a cure for cancer, bring back something useful. Don't bring back, Oh, they love you and you're going to be great in life. Like that's, that's really, I've never seen a message from a medium or a channeler that made me think, wow, that's really valuable information. Yeah. Or, or, or deep and and profound insight. What you have both spoken to though, can really be defined by uh, a certain kind of cultural narrowness in terms of exposure though, right? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I would add, because I know where you're going next, Matthew, I, I would just add before you do that, um, I think that, I think that it's, it's, it's even stronger than placebo. Derek, Derek brought up placebo with, when, when you're dealing with something like mediumship. In terms of looking into it, you know, admittedly from a skeptical point of view, although when I was younger, I would have been quite open to that kind of thing. There's, there's a profound experience that's happening, right? There's a, there's a deeply emotional experience that someone is getting to have in that context where they believe that the person sitting there is, is talking for or talking to their, their deceased loved one. Uh, maybe maybe some kind of closure happens. Maybe maybe just an opportunity to to grieve or to just to come to a new place in that process of loss. And I think that that's incredibly valuable. But but like Derek, I I find that the crossing over into that territory where the claims about life and death and the afterlife um, that 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 are the basis for the monetary exchange that are the basis for the belief system that then the person is going to walk away with, like I had this experience and therefore it means this and this about the, the, the ultimate nature of, of human, the human soul, for example, to me that, that that's the opposite direction of what I think um, healthy sort of uh, awareness practice goes in. And I think we're all hypervigilant about the fraudulent aspects or the capacity for deception. Um, and just to give away the script a little bit, next week we've got a very rich episode about John of God uh, based upon the, uh, the popularity of the recent Netflix special. And just in my notes, I've characterized him in the research that I've done so far as a raping gangster strongman who used spirituality to con millions. And he enjoyed the support of the police and the military. And we have to say also the new age consumer pipeline all the way to the global North. But then I'm doing, as I'm compiling the, the, the work for, for the episode uh, or some of it, I'm speaking to a Brazilian feminist journalist. Uh, her name is Myrna Wabi-Sabi doing an interview. Uh, and she's hypercritical of the grift of the misogyny and patriarchy of the strongman stuff. But then when I turn to talk about how um, there are Afro-Brazilian ritual and animist practices that inform what John of God did in his uh, healing, quote-unquote, sessions. Um, 
I ask her about how one of the women, the survivors who's featured in the Netflix documentary, uh, her name is Rahani. I don't know how to say the name, but um, I say that she has actually taken to Candomblé, which is a one of these traditions as a restorative practice after her experience with uh, John of God. And so um, John of God is a spiritist. Uh, and so he, uh, his whole thing is that he can embody uh, dead doctors and saints. Um, and he imports some of these uh, West African aspects into his ritual and spectacle. And so, as I understand it, Candomblé is, you know, spiritist-like possession by West African gods that uh, that the slaves brought with them for protection. Uh, and the practices involve complex rituals, exorcisms, sacrifices, and mediumship. Um, and I'm talking to uh, Myrna, and I find out that she identifies as a practitioner of this, right? And that she has found it to be incredibly rich and profound. And I'm like, wow, um, what would it be like to have this eagle eye upon the way in which a medium could be an absolute charlatan and then at the same time invest in a kind of metaphysics that takes many of those same elements and puts them at the heart of one's one's ritual like that's amazing and i don't know i personally don't know what that would be like because i think i'm so poisoned by what i see in stories like john of god and you know all of my cult experiences that that um i i just couldn't get there in the run up to this show, we you had mentioned Matthew that you have trouble with peak experiences, um, and that is something that flow states uh, evolved from Maslow's idea of peak experiences. So there's kind of a it's just a linguistic thing, but it's essentially the same idea. Um, so I want to respond to that in two parts. First off. Condomble is West African, so I, I don't know that much about Yoruba and Bantu, but I know a little bit more about Ganawa, so North African, general, same general trance ideas, which is the ceremony will start at sundown or shortly thereafter, and you the music goes on for eight to ten hours until the sun rises, and the dancers are predominantly dancing the entire time, the singers are chanting, and so from my perspective, I want to look at it in terms of the physiology of what's happening to their nervous systems if you get into a trance state by dancing for six to eight hours and what is possible at that time. Now, you brought up the idea of sort of a Western belief or looking at it that way. But in terms of flow state research, hundreds or probably at this point thousands of people have been studied under fMRI technology with while engaging in flow state activities and what they found was there was a shutting down of the prefrontal cortex and when this research started in the 1980s it thought that there was going to be hyperactivity in the brain it actually turned out to be hypoactivity so the areas of the prefrontal cortex that were shut down were actually parts of the brain that had to deal with identity and so what does that mean well there's an immersion in your surroundings there's a sense of the boundaries between your body and then your environment dissolving so that the activity you are doing and your personal history and baggage and everything that goes along with it are now dissolved so that you feel at one 
with that activity. And what's amazing is with flow states, it can only happen if you're enjoying the activity. So it has to be something you're passionate about. It can be reading, but it's often correlated with physical activities. So we we have a way of looking at these things and measuring them to say, well, across all domains, even though they're vastly different rituals that are happening, the same activity neurologically is happening. Does that mean that the brain is causing it? No, it's environmental, it's social. There's a lot more to that. But we have a way of actually looking at these phenomenon and being like, wow, there are actually activities that cut across cultures and domains and times that we can investigate and learn from. And I think some of that almost a, a, a mysticism of science, when you look at it from that way, as Ramachandran would say, it is really useful for us, but we get so caught up in our own specific domain that we forget that other domains, that those states are possible in other domains as well. Well, let me add to that too, Derek. I, I love what you were just saying in terms of how you're unpacking flow states and kind of the, the universality of the human organism, right? That our nervous systems and brains are the same. And so it, it cuts across different cultures. And while the entry point may be different, people have people of, in, in all times and places have figured out ways to access these states that we find beneficial, meaningful, etc. Not only is it about the dissolving of the boundaries between self and environment and self and other, but also a sense of timelessness, right? Also a sense of being at the center of the universe itself, connected with everyone, uh, a sense of great, great peace and, and uh, effortless kind of awareness, just, just doing what it does. So yeah, I want to second all of that. And I also want to say that I, I would never want to, on an interpersonal level, I would never, ever want to take away from what you were describing, Myrna, as, you know, have, having this, this practice that, that, that does that for her, that does what we've just been describing. I would never want to take away from this woman who has healed from, from horrific experiences using what she has available to her from her culture within her particular environment and, and, and that being beneficial to her. I think that pe people who get bitten by the rationalist bug just maybe have a certain kind of temperament where we say, well, yes, all of that. And it matters at the end of the day, wh what we think is really true and, and, and figuring out what's true uh, in, in these kind of ultimate ways is, is a worthwhile endeavor. And so the, the, the experiences can be meaningful and valid and not be true. And as you've, as you've highlighted and underlined beautifully, Matthew, that that can be problematic in certain cases and maybe in other cases, it just is what it is. And there, and a healthy dose of, of humility and acceptance of other people's path is, is a good thing. Well, I think that I really focused on uh, this juxtaposition between people finding a kind of resistance within Condomble and also Umbanda is the other practice. Um, in response to the kind of Christo-fascism that we see in uh, John of God. But to go back to this premise of the universality of flow states and the fact that, you know, they are just accessible to everybody and we, we are starting to understand the organics of it. Um, the, the reason that this comparison is really amazing to me is that when people are sitting in the quote unquote flow at the Casa in Abhijanya, uh, with John of God, they're in flow states too. 
And yeah. that's, and that's why they're, and that's how they are being abused. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, uh, it, it feels like the, it feels like the, the organic and biological descriptions of the flow states are one thing. And then there's this other question of, well, what's the community of care that's actually holding them? Group flow is also a studied phenomenon. Uh, Charles Lim at Johns Hopkins uh, studied jazz and hip hop improvisational artists where he hooked up them to fMRI while they were playing and found that their brainwaves synchronized while they were performing together and take that at a large scale. You can really call college football in America chances for group flow to happen. It's, to, it's soccer, right? Around the world. Like that completely happens. That's why people lose their identity and sometimes the violence that happens after their team loses because they're so invested in that. And both counts, the comparison to religion that's often made, I think, is, is a valid one that for them, Football is a religion. Yes. And just like our talks that we've had in previous weeks about psychedelics, these are content-free experiences. So if your thing is going off and listening to this guy, and I, I, you're doing the reporting on John of God, I'm not that familiar, but if you're in a state where you're meditating together, dancing together, whatever that ritual environment you're in, if that is something that gives you a sense of community, then whatever content is being put out there, once you reach that state, you are going to be open like a book for them to put that content in there. And that to me is part of the indoctrination process. Yeah. And that, then that flow states are also highly suggestible. So we're susceptible both to our motivated reasoning that says, Oh, this, I had this experience. It must mean this. And we're susceptible to others who we trust saying, ah, now you've had, you've, you've had the knowledge as, as, uh, as Premier Watt calls it. Right. And so now you know that I'm really God on earth, for example. Let's bring it back to our listeners though, because I think that, um, this question, uh, which the, my comparison of the, or my pointing out that the MLM seller also talks, talks to dead people, that is, that really sort of touched a nerve. And I think the nerve is, and I think the nerve also gets touched in the comparison between what's happening in John of God's Casa and uh, Condomble, perhaps, which is that to criticize the, or to analyze the use of spirituality in uh, La Casa uh, implies that I think for some people that people who do this are unethical or they are more liable to hurt others than if you know they had gone to a business management school or whatever that that if they chose something else to do with their lives and so I think that's really where the question hits home for a lot of people that's my sense anyway I think that's really good I you know what I mean? Really like, good. yeah, because, because when, when somebody comes in and says, they say, they say, well, you know, I'm a practicing psychic and I don't abuse people. They, they may be lying, <laughs> but, or they may be so unself-aware that they have no idea that through the process of like unexamined transference and counter-transference, they are fucking up people actually, and they shouldn't be taking money and they should have gone to school instead. But it is possible it is very possible that in their own contexts, in their own communities of care, they are providing valuable services. And I think that our demographics, our global north 
uh, uh, consumer demographics do not really give us insight into how these things work in places where they have worked more continuously for longer periods of time, where, you know, maybe the, the, I mean, my instinct is my instinct, my gut feeling when somebody says that they practice mediumship in Toronto is that they're fucking people over. Like that's, that's, that's what my gut instinct says. And I don't think it's fair. And I, I want to really interrogate that in, in myself because maybe it is actually more true, more often true than not in Toronto. Uh, but, that doesn't give me permission to say that it is true uh, in, I don't know, in, in South and Central America or in, or in India. Well, we're dealing with, again, these media. We are not built for social media culturally. We just, humans have never had this sort of experience before. We, and, and we grew, as middle-aged men, we watched it unfold in our lifetimes like we had access to international news when we were growing up, but not at the rapidity which we do now and not in the ways that we do now. So this is really new territory. I still don't think though that there are not fields of study that cross cultures that can be beneficial. And if we're talking, I mean, it's, it is a challenging subject to talk about. Um, Levi Strauss was criticized for his views on anthropology, but he still brought a lot to the field. So when there's no other way to look at reality than through your own experiences, you can build empathy in yourself and try to understand, but you're still going to take your experiences. And that's as true of us as Americans and Canadians as it is of any, anyone else around the world. They're going to take their experiences and bring it with them. So there are both cultural nuances that we should account for when we're looking at it, but I think there are also biological experiences that we can also investigate and understand that cut across those cultures as well if we understand the entry point of the content and the culture for those people. And I want to say too, Matthew, that um, I, I agree with what you're saying. I I I think that there are people who show up in our comments threads who say, you know, I I I do mediumship or I'm a psychic and you know I I'm very I'm very ethical about how I do it and I'm a I'm 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 not making the kinds of mistakes that you're that you're pointing out. Um, and I think that that may may be absolutely true for them and it and it may well be that the the people who uh, receive their services feel really good about it and it might be a lovely thing within that community. Um, I, because of my temperament, I tend to think that ultimately it's it's they're being misled in some important way. And I think that the trickiest part in all of this is the moment you step over into the paranormal, you are claiming some special knowledge or ability that has a kind of authority attached to it that's really distinct. It's a really specific kind of authority because I'm the one who can talk to those on the other side or I'm the one who has the psychic ability to foretell the future. And for me, that that's just it's it's really dangerous and and untrue. Even though the person may be having an experience that they believe warrants that interpretation. I think you know when I hear and I read a little bit about a West African and now Afro-Brazilian indigenized religious tradition that calls upon gods that. And, and, or entities, I'm not quite sure the terminology that 
will give them information that is protective and reflective of their terrible passage from their homeland and will help sustain them and give them hope and, um, uh, you know, if not optimism. It's very, very difficult for me to continue to say that there's anything about that that's misleading. Um, I, so I don't, I mean, if you can sort of connect the dots between that and some kind of fraud or, or emotional abuse, then, then there you have it. But yeah, if this is just kind of a new avenue for me, it's like, I, I realize that I have, I have a, I have a bias towards saying, okay, well, you're, you're, you know, at some point you're going to grow out of that. <laughs> and uh, that's just, it's just, it's like, that's, I, I, it's not my place. The elephant in the room is a kind of cultural imperialism, right? It's a, it's totally, it's, yeah, yeah. And so in, within the historical context that you're gesturing towards within the kind of cultural sensitivity that you're modeling right now, I completely agree with you. I do think that in practice, anytime, whatever the culture is, whatever the historical context is and, and European People have had had plenty of this as well in in our history and and perhaps still today in some places. Whenever that paranormal thing is is in the room, the sense that you're maybe paying someone to cast a spell so that uh, things go this way or go that way in your life that that that's sort of the underlying psychology that I think is is universal to human beings and. I just don't think it works. So th th there may be some archetypal, psychological, emotional ways that that people find a sense of hope, and I think that that's beautiful. But but yeah, to me, it does come down to the sense of like, are you putting your faith and your money and your energy and your beliefs about reality into something that is ultimately empty and and will will not actually give you the relief that you're hoping it will give you existentially, or are you coming to terms? with what it is to be human in a way that I do think is universal. And, and I'm willing to look at that if that's, if that is a kind of, you know, massive cultural bias blind spot. <laughs> well, that's a good entry point into, I want to focus a little on the other two questions about yeah. asking whether there are good spiritual communities and good spiritual teachers out there. And unequivocally, I will say, yes, I've long said about my friends who are Catholic or Christian or some one of the thousands of sects of Christianity that exists out there, uh, if their church brings them a sense of community, that's awesome. I feel the same way about yoga studios. Uh, mine was Equinox for 17 years. Yes, I work there, but those, my people were there because I spent all of my time there when I wasn't at my desk working. It's, so I, I actually, I would take the word spiritual out of there. Are there good communities and good teachers? Then the answer is yes. I, I know many people who do not take advantage of their students and many communities that don't have power struggles, that have regular human dynamics, but that there's no charlatan at the top trying to take advantage of people. These are totally possible. And unfortunately, I think for people involved in them, uh, they know that and they go there. And, uh, and whether you're talking about Christianity or Islam, Sufism, which I know a little about, or yoga, whatever that is, as soon as it spills over into the metaphysics, I kind of tap out. But if you're talking about the real world interactions among people and just being together in a tribe, I think there are plenty of places that people will naturally gravitate toward. 
there's also this problem of like um, functional communities don't advertise themselves, right? They they, they don't have anything to sell. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you're questioning like the, the usefulness of the word spiritual there, because I think as soon as that word is in there, for me, the notion of the spiritual organization and whether or not it can be toxic is actually more of an economic question than anything else. Because I think a lot of the cultures and um, subcultures and groups that we study on this podcast feature just a network of people who have professionalized into spirituality as a commodity in the globalization era. And that's where we get businesses and we get cults that are kind of uh, tasked with producing meaning into and sort of plugging the, the, the meaning gaps in, in, in the culture. Um, then there's another possibility, which is that people can institutionalize into spirituality instead of professionalize. And in that sense, we get churches. Um, and so I would say, you know, are there good spiritual communities out there? The basic business model difference between what Rama Yoga in Venice, California does and what William Barber's Black Church does, I'm not even sure where it is, is probably like very, very strong. Like like in the latter, there's going to be, um, you know, a history of practices and policies and uh, there's going to be a, a board of directors and there's going to be some sort of like hierarchy of responsibility um, that is rooted in a social project. Uh, it's not rooted in making money necessarily at all. Uh, it's rooted actually, um, in, in, yeah, the, the social project of, of equality. And in any case, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I lean towards now number two, uh, in terms of the definition of a good spiritual community, that which is institutionalized, uh, as having just having through history more tools at hand in general for accountability uh, and leadership standards. And I'm saying that as an ex-Catholic, right? So that is, uh, that, you know, that's pretty pretty strong, <laughs> right? That takes that. I mean, I have to, I have to, um, I have to hold my nose while I say that, actually. Uh, because it's, it's, it's really, I mean, I grew up in a basically a criminal organization. Uh, and, but you know, what's, what's the, what's the globalized spirituality as commodity option? Uh, we have, I mean, we have businesses, uh, and, we have cults and I don't really see a lot of, I don't really see a lot of disambiguation. I, I, I have a sense that religion and spirituality have always been connected to commerce in some, in some oh, sense, for sure. right? Yeah. So right. we know that the, the Catholic church was for, for a few hundred years selling indulgences where you could, uh, you could show up and make your donation and be absolved of whatever sins were going to get you into purgatory. Um, we, we know that, you know, if you, if you travel through India, you will find that every town has their resident holy man who has learned a set of magic tricks from his mentor and that he uses that to, to sort of make his way in the world and, and, and gain money and fame and, and everything that comes with it. Uh, I just, I think it's, it's really tricky. So when you say spirituality though, specifically, you're talking about institutions, correct? Because if you go to pre-Harappan civilization, then you're talking about 
tribes in the in the numbers of hundreds uh, collect uh, gathering and no real forms of commerce to trade. But I would tend to think that the effects and the feelings that we associate with what we call spirituality are baked into the human condition. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. And if you're, if you're going to go back that far, then maybe not always. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's, I think it's an important point because there yeah. is something about um, when a religion gets institutionalized in a manner that I, I don't know what the threshold is. Every religion started as a cult, right? But I don't know when it becomes accepted. Uh, you say well, that. So, yeah, okay, we could we could leave that. A cult in the very open sense of yes. what that word yeah, means, yeah, right? right? A small, not not very well organized, right? Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> Whenever I say that word, I see Matthew's face, and I <laughs> like, don't, no, don't do that. I know there's going to be a, a long Slack thread coming soon. Um, no, 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 but, no. I, I just I had, I had my outburst. We don't have to do Slack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I I do believe. I mean, we don't have to talk like stone monkey theory, but. I do believe that these these feelings are probably are part of what drove religion and the human imagination for a long time. But what happens when you get large gatherings of people together and power structures and commerce are introduced, that's when the institutionalization kicks in. And uh, what we're dealing with is the consequences of that going back five, 6,000 years. Okay, but let's get really specific to our IG feed and the 24-year-old person who is like on a gap year or something like that. And they're saying, oh my God, Every time you bring up a yoga group or a Buddhist organization, it's like an intergenerational abuse nightmare. Are there good spiritual communities out there? And to speak to that specific question, um, you know, another version of that question is, what yoga teacher training program should I go to? Because so many of them are attached to schools that have all these unresolved abuse issues. And my, my basic shrugging kind of sorry answer is you know, we're talking about groups that have emerged in neoliberal, like commercial contexts that have created commodities out of spiritual content and invented, you know, uh, jobs really for, for uh, a certain kind of privileged class of people. And so we're not talking about groups that have... Um, you know, institutional memory or history or elders or um, ways of uh, um, ways of self-correcting. We're really talking about businesses out there right now, and so that's why. Yeah, that's that's why I, I just want to pick a pick at this distinction a little bit between right. you know, is your spiritual group. How far back does it go? When was it founded? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, does it know who its great grandparents are, and what have its figures done in that history that is now exemplary for the present generation? And if we're talking about historical black churches, then you know we've got sort of a, a line and and a, and a theory of change and a kind of social strategy for for actually doing something. I mean, that's the other thing I've said uh, on on this podcast many times is that modern spiritual communities 
function as businesses without products except for the aspirational self. And so when a person says, what YTT program should I go to? I'm like, okay, well, what kind of aspirational self do you want to buy and how much money do you have to spend? <laughs> like, I, because, because you may find friends, but, but that's not going to be based upon the quality of the spiritual community. It's going to be based upon the luck of who fucking shows up. That's it. Yeah. Well, I just want to interject here too that, you know, Sai Baba uh, probably had about six, some, some estimates say he had about six million followers worldwide. He was treated as a god man. He did all sorts of magic tricks. He had people showing up to see him in, in their thousands every day of his life. Yeah. Total um, and, criminal. And, and yeah, just an absolutely a despicable person in the final analysis. He died with a net worth of about nine billion. Billion dollars? Nine billion. Yeah. I did not know that. I, I did yeah. hear about I did hear about people driving cars away from the ashram after yeah. he was barely cold with with cars stuffed full of cash. I did hear yeah, about now that. Yeah, the, the the Catholic Church today, the Vatican is estimated to be worth about thirty billion. Uh, right. The ch- the Church of Latter Day Saints around a hundred billion. So I I mean I don't know <laughs> which which one which one is more involved in making money. I, I think that if you're going to look at spirituality as a thing that is free of money, you're missing the point, or you're missing a large component of of what this practice is. I mean, if you if you need to be spiritual and have those feelings, you can sit and meditate in your room where you live and have those experiences. When I ran my first teacher training at Equinox. We had 36 students. And I remember very early in the program, I said, look around the room. And in a few years, I would say, guess that maybe two of you will be teachers making a living doing yoga. And at that time, people were like, what? You know, because people were trying to transition their career. And then I told them- What year was that, Derek? 2008. Oh, you, you, you gave that talk early then. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't start saying so, that until about four years later, four or five years later. But you were right, I think. Yeah, I, and I told, and then I told them what it took for me to make a living as a yoga instructor. Where at that time in my life, most of my money, teaching nineteen classes a week, running teacher trainings and whatever workshops I did. When I explained my commute from Jersey City and then Brooklyn when I moved to the to all the different Equinox, when I told them the amount of time I spent on subways and what I had to do in preparation for all the classes. Everyone was like, oh yeah, that's a lot of work. And I I just, one thing that I've talked to yoga instructors from different schools that had a very different experience, that they were presented, change your life. You're going to make your living because this is your passion. And then they ran around town for $20 a class for 90 minutes teaching and they, they went broke or they, they had to get other jobs. And they were like, they felt like they were sold a false good of bills. They were. And they absolutely were. And that, that is where I have problems with spiritual communities. This, this secret idea, this, this manifestation idea that if you follow it, it's just going to happen. If you want to make a living doing that sort of work, you have to be a business person and you have to hustle just like any other industry that exists. And that, that is one of the issues I take with broader spiritual communities that present this idea that following your passion will bring you everything that you need. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also, I also hear what you're saying, Matthew, in terms of, uh, in terms of just a kind of that, that neoliberal reality of the, of the environment within which these forms of, of, of spiritual commerce have, have emerged. I, I also think for me, the beliefs really matter. The teachings really matter. 
um, the extent to which a community sees certain individuals as being literally divine or infallible, the extent to which they get structured as rigid hierarchies, the extent to which they teach anti-psychological denial of vulnerability uh, or denial of suffering and rejection of critical thinking and embrace some kind of prophetic, like grand supernatural mission. Those things to me are really strong red flags in terms of something potentially being very toxic. But even if those things are not there, it can still be exploitive to your, to your point, right? And it can still be disengaged from, from taking action in the world the way you're flagging uh, the, the black church as doing. Well, rounding it towards home, what about spiritual teachers? Are there good spiritual teachers out there or is that all bullshit? You know, I've pointed to him many times. I think Dharma Mitra, as far as I know, there have not been any scandals around him. When I practiced, <laughs> That's a pretty low bar. <laughs> when I, because because a teacher of that stature, like, and hasn't had any that I've come across, which is great. Some of his students have that I practiced with. But I, I, I bring that up because here's someone who would do like visualization, cosmic meditation workshops and he would say things that I would just be like, I, okay, I, I'm, when I rub my eyes a lot, those aren't real stars that I'm seeing, right? So let's just move past that. But the actual training and what I got from the community there, because in his old studio in the room, when you were with people, you just would assist people. There would just be a very hands-on sort of not non-confrontational environment. Like if you saw someone trying to do a handstand and they needed to help you go and help them. And it was just, it was just very, it was a playground. And it's actually how I sort of tried to create my classes from that after those experiences. But it was somebody who was deeply invested in the practice, had beliefs that I didn't necessarily believe in, but that that community and being in that, being in that brought something very important to me where here 15 years later, I'm still remembering fondly those experiences. And personally, I didn't have any negative experiences at all in that time. And I would imagine that there are plenty of other people again, but do you know what? It's hard to market being good. Usually it's controversial or the there's fallout. A, there's, an or inverse, there's, there's an inverse relationship to charisma, right? Yes. Yes. Some people, and, and it was a slow build. He had been teaching in New York city since the seventies. So it was just like, it, he was doing it cause he loved it. So I would say that, yes, I think there are people that can give great guidance out there. I'm going to refer to the hypothetical 24 year old, uh, on Instagram who is asking for endorsements. And what I would say is uh, whoever is labeling, I mean, there's a whole TikTok generation that I know very little about, and I'm sure that very some very young people are calling themselves spiritual teachers or positioning themselves that way. I think Elizabeth April, for example, is like 28 years old or whatever. But um, in general, I think people are saying, uh, who would give me spiritual leadership? Who would be an elder? And my, my question, my first question is, okay, so if you're in your mid-20s right now, people who are in that position are in their 40s or older. They, they're in their 50s, they're in their 60s. And you have to ask yourself, what have they done with their lives? Like, <laughs> what, they, if, if they are, if they are, you know, I'll just throw out a, a name like Adyashanti. What has he done? Like, wh why is he in the position, or Eckhart Tolle, why are they in the position where they can sit 
you know, on a throne at Omega Institute and speak to a thousand people at a time and pull in a whole bunch of money? Or why is Pema Chodron somebody who everybody will gather around? Um, Like, what, what have these people done in the world to merit that kind of attention. And there will be a range of answers. Like all of these people have biographies and maybe some of them got into quote unquote spiritual teaching at the end of careers. And, you know, maybe they were, I don't know, climate activists before, and then they retired and they got into Zen poetry and they started giving Dharma talks or whatever. But, but I, I would just take that question and then project it forward and say, for the person who's in their 20s, can you imagine what it would mean in your life to become a quote-unquote spiritual teacher? Like, what would you give up in order to do that? What other career sort of pathways would close for you? And what would you base that on? And what would it actually be? Like, given the world that you live in right now, and all of the work that needs to be done, and all of the intersecting tragedies that we're all too well aware of, like, what would that be? Would that, could that ever be a valid choice or or a productive choice going forward? Like, can you imagine justifying that? Those would be the questions that I'd start with. I would just respond simply that if someone's looking, again, at the word spiritual being loaded, but if they are looking for a spiritual teacher, I'd ask what they mean by that. And if they're looking for some assurances that life is going to be okay, I would say, go read Ernest Becker <laughs> and then just try to absorb that and have a little bit more of a broader view of existence and then right because if they don't if 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 they don't um if if they're not satisfied with Ernest Becker Becker or with Viktor Frankl or or any other you know classic that we can point to then I have the sense that what we feel they might be asking for is somebody that they can project a whole bunch of stuff onto. Yeah. What are, what are you really looking for? And I, I like that you just went there, Derek. It's like, okay, these really, if, if what you're talking about is the deep questions of what it is to be human, then there is, there, there's a lot of literature and there's, there's a lot of ways that you can explore that, that are, that are substantive. Um, if, if you are seeking out a teacher, why? If you are seeking out a community, what are, what are you hoping to get from it? I would say that I, I think there are good teachers out there. They, they certainly don't claim to be enlightened or to be holy, to be in touch with some ultimate truth that is beyond mere mortal understanding. For me, that's always a big red flag, so go the other way. But they, what they will do is share tools and ideas and, and encourage a kind of open-ended practice that makes space for the actual like gritty authenticity and vulnerability of being human without like layering all kinds of metaphysical oversimplification on top of that. And they'll also do things like refer out to therapists and defer to science science and be frank about where they're learning and growing and what they actually don't know. These for me are all good signs of a a trustworthy teacher. Uh, I would like some examples, please. (laughs) You've you've created your ideal list, but who are you actually talking about? My, My ideal mentor at this point would be like, a good novelist, mm-hmm. <laughs> not, not because, you know, I would hang out with them or need to get a psychotherapy referral from them, but because, you know, I want to figure out how they, you know, inhabit the subjectivities of other people and, and how they do their artistry. Yeah. I like that. I, I think broad, like, like Derek said too, and, and what you're alluding to is broadening your scope of how you, 
how you think about what you mean by quote unquote spirituality. I, I know that there are people who have criticisms. I have always felt that the, the Jack Cornfield kind of spirit rock uh, group of teachers uh, fit the bill of what I just described. You know, um, one thing that I want to say is that, uh, that connects these two questions, are there good spiritual communities and are there good spiritual teachers, is that often um, people will offer endorsements for spiritual teachers that connect their content with some kind of social justice um, you know, a uh, uh, project. So people will say, oh, well, you know, Lama Rod Owens is doing this great work in, um, you know, in, in uh, spirituality and equality and Angel Kyoto Williams. And, you know, Plum Village is this wonderful example of, it's, I, I guess all of my examples are Buddhist here, which speaks a little bit to the fact that, uh, you know, Buddhist discourse is a little bit more interested in this stuff. And, you know, I, I always feel like, oh, that's, that's well and good, um, but I, there seems to be this thing where people want what they really want is they want a just world, <laughs> and if they can be inspired to encounter or 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 nurture a just world by somebody who's wearing a robe or somebody who is using Buddhism to reason out the justness or the possible justness of the world, then that will feel better. Um, but I, I don't know. I also ha think that there's sometimes a way in which teachers like this um, end up presenting things like Buddhism in this kind of way that overcompensates for the fact that the organizations that they're coming from are filled with abuse or that they haven't been on point in terms of social justice for decades. Um, so, so I, 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 I'm just ambivalent there. It feels like if, if you want a just world, you do social action and organization and you find a group that has a theory of change and, that and, and if you think that your Buddhist organization is really doing that, um, I would ask, well, is it really? And, you know, I would say, well, what material changes has it actually made in your world? It's really interesting to me. I just want to comment on it that uh, all three of us have slightly different angles in terms of where our skepticism is and where our, where we make space for things that we don't necessarily agree with on this topic. I, I think that's been really interesting. 